Hello everyone, I'm Stephen Caldwell and this is the second episode of Tactical Talks and I'm delighted to welcome on the boss of Newcastle Jets in the A-League in Australia and a very good friend of mine, Carl Robinson. How are you doing, Carl? Yeah, very well, thank you, mate. Thanks for coming on, having a little chat with me about uh, your experiences, obviously, through playing, but most importantly as a manager and, and what you feel are the, the key elements to being successful in that role. Well, there's lots to it. Obviously, break, we'll break it down as we go along, but um, there's certain things that, for me, are non-negotiable and certain things that I try to stay well away from based upon past experiences and mould who you want to become and how you want to become that person. I love Nowadays. Sorry to interrupt. I love that first part there, non-negotiable. I, I love that saying. I've heard Gary, my brother, say it a number of times, who's my, my first guest on this uh, this series. And it's such a important thing, I think, to recognise. Let's get into that first before we go through the stages. But non-negotiables, like, what does that mean to you? Is, is, is that more of a, a culture thing and what you're trying to achieve with a group? Uh, give me an idea of what your non-negotiables would be. Yeah, well, I think to make it as simple as I can, and football is about being as simple as you can because you're dealing with 30-odd players, what I would say is, this is what I require on the field, and this is what I require off the field. If you do that, you have a good chance of playing. If you don't do that, there's a possibility you won't play, and it is as simple as that. So say, example, on the field would be, you know, you need to, uh, if you're a midfield player, you need to win tackles, win duels, you need to... You know, make sure you complete passes. You need to run forward. Uh, you try and get in the opposition box. For me, that's non-negotiable for a midfield player. That is what you have to do. Obviously, that's on the field. Off the field would be turn up on time, be a professional, be a good teammate, um, and, and always come to work with a smile on your face. Because, and I know that's not easy sometimes because different people have different lives and things like that, and you, you experience things through your life that you, you don't know how to deal with, so it affects who you are as a person. Um, but, you know, coming to work over 300 times a, a year into the same place, seeing the same faces, is not easy. So with a smile on your face, you actually uh, get on better, you actually put better work in, because if you're happy, obviously you commit to work. So... Those are two examples of non-negotiables for, I would say, a midfield player that I would, they would all know what a non-negotiable is, what their role is. Um, if you're a centre forward and you're never in the opposition box, you're not going to play. It's as simple as that. So um, I make it easy and as simple as I can to players uh, individually and then collectively as a group. You know, we win together, we lose together, we attack together, we defend together. Those things are non-negotiable as well. I think that clarity is, is really important for players. I, I know that we were teammates at Sunderland. We'll, we'll get into that more and in, in a little bit into this, this, uh, this episode. But to me, clarity is absolutely essential with players. And, and I like what you said there. Your non-negotiables are, are pretty clear things that you expect from certain players in their positions. Now, the question I want to ask was that form. There's many things you you sort of that are very different between playing and coaching, and there's many things that are similar. But I think that the things that are formed as a player really come into your your way of thinking and what you want to see from your team as a a, a coach, a head coach, or an assistant coach. Is that fair in saying that that's uh, developed through years of of having a career in football? Oh, without a doubt, uh, it's. What you say, and I listen to a lot of managers now nowadays, and especially when you've got time in your hands, you tend to watch games of football. But I tend to analyse interviews prior, post-match and pre-match and, you know, in the lead-up to games and things like that. And, you know, the experiences I've had with nearly 13-odd managers, 40-odd managers throughout my career, uh, you pick out the best bits, and there certainly is more best bits than not-so-good bits, and you leave the, the bad bits behind. You know, people say about being a good manager, you don't need to be a good player. Uh, and I agree to that to an extent because if you if you don't if you've played doesn't make you automatically a good manager. But what I do say is if you have played and you've got the same work ethic as if you haven't played and you've got the same learning capability and learning skills as if you haven't played, playing gives you a knowledge of what it's like to be in a locker room, what it's like to be in an environment which the non-playing managers don't have. Because you can read it, 
but you can't experience it. So those are the things, you know, good and bad that I've taken on board from each manager. And each manager has had really good things and each manager has had things which probably I don't agree with now or didn't agree with at the time, um, but I'm molding my way. Um, so it's, it's been real interesting path as you go along. And, you know, I'm not here talking to you today, you know, saying, oh, I developed this mentality and this mindset and this methodology from me. You know, football is a worldwide game. It's been going on for years and years. What you do is you take ideas from people and you put them into how you want to play and be clear with them how you want to play. So people who say, well, I've developed this and I've developed that and I've found a way of doing this. It's all a load of rubbish because someone else would have done it prior. You know, even on the black and white TVs, these top, top managers years ago do the same things as we do. But obviously we probably go into it in more detail and more depth now because... You know, you have to. Yeah. Let's get into some of the uh, the influences that, that helped you create your ideology then. You started at, at Wolverhampton, Robbo, and, and it was your first club, and you worked under a few managers there. So, you know, you're an early young pro learning, trying to be a sponge and pick up everything that you can to be the best player that you can. But but give us some of the experiences with the guys that you worked under there. And, uh, and and how you've kind of took some of the attributes on in, in your managerial career? I was a 16-year-old and I signed a YTS form uh, prior scholarship, prior to obviously then turning into a pro. The first day I got there with my, my mother and father, my late father, said the manager was there, Graham Turner, and he was in the room with Ron Jukes, who was a scout, and said, I'm not going to make it. On the first day I signed, I would not make it as a pro because I was too small, too quiet, uh, too nice. <laughs> on the first day and I was like wow uh, I remember sitting in that room crying my eyes out to my to my mum mum and dad because I was a quiet boy from Wales who by the way was small was quiet um, and probably back then was a little bit soft I, I didn't understand what the big bad world was about so from that moment onwards you know the first two weeks was like hell for me I didn't know where to turn what to do or whatever and I, I was that quiet Welsh boy and then I thought do you know what I've got nothing to lose I got my head down. I worked every day. I was in the gym every day. Um, and Graham Turner kept pushing me and saying, listen, football's about opinions. Prove people wrong. So I did. And a year later, I signed a professional form under Graham Taylor, uh, Graham Turner. And he says to me, the reason why they've done that is to try and get the best out of me. Rather than saying I've already made it and relaxing, telling me I wasn't good enough was the mindset that he wanted for me to actually come out of my shell, develop a personality, develop a voice and work hard. Uh, and he done it with all of the players. Obviously, out of that group, little group, five were taken on. A year later, only one was taken on. So that was the first idea of, of your mind, how your mind can affect football uh, with, with what Graham Turner done. Fast forward on then six months and Graham Taylor takes charge, the ex-England manager who yeah. you know, got criticism unfairly, really. Um, but got it from pillar to post. Uh, and I still remember him when he was in, and I was on the outskirts of the first team, couldn't break in. And he pulled me in the office one day and said, uh, Robbo, listen, I'm going to get sacked tomorrow. The late Graham Taylor. And I said, right. Uh, I was uh, one year into a three-year contract and he goes, I'm going to get sacked. Uh, it's all set up. They want me out because there was protests outside Molyneux. And, but I want you to sign a new deal. Uh, and I signed a five-year deal at, at Molyneux and the day before he actually lost his job. And it was because he had been watching the youth come through the team and they come through the, the squad. And I was one of three that he highlighted and he won a reward based upon how he felt if he was at the club longer term. And literally after I signed the contract, he, he obviously left the job. But a massive influence in my career because looking after players when they do well is a key fundamental that I have in my way of managing because if you don't players get upset because players obviously think about themselves and their family and rightly so but you've got to reward them when they do well yeah I'm interested to know more about Graham Taylor I think that you mentioned that he is much maligned and a lot of that's because of a documentary that was done on him when he was or done on him when he was England manager a number of years ago and in the UK we saw him as being a uh, you know, a pretty desperate man at that time. But when you speak to players who have worked with him, it's complete opposite. Give us an idea what his key attributes were and, and maybe a little bit around his style of play, but more about his kind of um, management style, I'd like to know. 
everything you see on the documentary is not what he was. Yeah. Amazing because, you know, I know documentaries and, and shows, series, try to profile managers and profile players uh, in, in a good way. And it usually comes out in a bad way. Uh, yeah. But what I say to that is, you know, I don't believe that people are actually genuine when they know that there's someone filming them. You know, if you have a, if you have a TV camera or you have a, a microphone on you, you don't become the person you are. You try and become the person that they want to see and you change your personality and you become someone you're not. Uh, and I, I, that has not changed for me over the 25, 30 years I've been in football. So Graham Taylor was not like that. Uh, what I will say is he probably molded into that based upon the pressure that he was under managing his country, which is a, you know, I don't know what that feels like. Hopefully one day I might get to, but uh, managing the work, the England expectations must be a huge burden. Um, but from that moment onwards, you know, he was, he was, he was gentleman. He was genuine. He was honest. He was clear with how he wanted to play. He was pretty direct in how he wanted to play. He played a simple four, four, two system. You know, he didn't get caught up in all of the, the, the overload scenarios and things like that. He made it very simple. If you're, if you're a wide player, we had Tony Daly and Steve Fogger at the time. Yeah. Cross the ball. Your job is to cross the ball. Give them give a, a, a target of five crosses per half, 10 crosses per game. And if you're a centre forward, Steve Ball, Andy Murch, Don Goodman, be in the box. That's your job. So he made playing as simple as possible and an enjoyable way as well. He was a big, big advocate on team spirit and everyone was joining in, whether you were young or old. So, you know, there's the character you saw of the late Graham Taylor was probably in that documentary was not who he really was. Um, having said that, obviously, pressure does a lot of things to people. Yeah, and, and so how do you cope with that pressure? It's it's going to overwhelm you at times. You're, you feel like, I guess at times, you can't do anything right as a manager. Probably, hopefully, at times you feel like you can't do anything wrong as well. But when the pressure's building like that and you feel like the scrutiny is just on you, what are some of your mechanisms for dealing with that? Well, I always take the pressure on myself, you know, and I I have got criticised in some quarters based upon I let players off the hook, all right, because they say, well, why are you taking the pressure when the players didn't play well? At the end of the day, the manager's job is to get the players to perform. And I, I'm a firm believer that if you do that as a manager, sometimes it doesn't work out, but you've got a better chance of it working out than if you try to throw players under the bus or try and get a reaction out of them in a negative scenario. So for me, it was the players done well, they could have the plaudits and rightly so. And if they didn't do well or it didn't come off, I would take the blame. Even if a player or a team played badly, it was my responsibility. You know, the manager is in charge of everything. And if results don't come, yes, players don't play well, but I've never met a player yet that goes on to a field that doesn't mean to play badly. He doesn't mean to not give 100%. You talk about your non-negotiables. You know, my players give me 100% every single day, every single game. So how can I then, on the other hand, say, well, it's the player's fault you lose a game. I don't do that. I never will. I never have done. That won't change. Um, and it's the outside influences that probably are the negative ones rather than the inside influences. So, um, you know, you try and take as much pressure off them as you can and put it on yourself. Having said that, you need a release as well. It's important you talk to your coaches. It's important you listen to. The reason you have assistance is because they're there to assist you and help you. They're not there to try and cloud your judgment. They're there to try and help you make decisions in a clear way. Um, so you always talk to your staff. Very important they have a voice. Very important they feel like they're part of it. Um, whether they lose their jobs or not when you do. Um, but it's very important that uh, you, you try and keep as clear ahead. Don't get too excited when you win. Don't be thinking you're the best manager in the world when you win, but also don't think you're the worst manager in the world when you lose. And it's important you keep an even keel. Yeah, I, I've got a great story. I, I worked under Walter Smith with Scotland and uh, and he used to tell us a story. He had these two back pages, two uh, framed photographs of back pages in his, uh, in his hallway at his home in, in Glasgow, the outskirts of Glasgow. And one of them was basically Walter Smith, best manager in the world. And the one next to it was Walter Smith, worst Rangers manager in the world. You know, like, so he had both of them there as reference points to let him know that it was ne he was never the best and he was never the worst. He was somewhere in between. And I thought that was a great story. And 
you've just mentioned that point there. It's the the kind of evenness of the the sort of uh, I guess the the mindset of the squad that's controlled by you, isn't it, as a head coach? And and so you're the one that has to be careful that you don't allow these guys to get too big headed, or you don't allow these players to get too down when they're losing games. It's not it's not the players. I think is the the, the negative influence or the influences. It's the outside world because yeah. the outside world get told a story you know the story might not be true and nine times out of ten the story isn't true but what do you do you can't affect the outside world other than trying to justify try and explain and you spend hours and hours of, of your own time and the player's time trying to convince people who have already made up their mind based upon a story or a, an idea that's out there which is nothing to do with you, you know, it's been told. And that's what happens in football, you know. How many times do you look at uh, football stories all over the world where they say managers come under pressure, all right? Yeah. And the manager knows nothing about it, but the story's out there because, for one reason, um, you know, whatever that reason may be, it's yeah. out there. So your job is not to control that. You're not going to change that. The story's out there by someone or some people or some club. Your job is to control your players and your locker room. So... Never lose focus on that. You control the controllables, and your players are the controllables. And it's important you keep it, as I said, an even keel, and don't change your personality. People, uh, media, you know, uh, outside influences like to see a crack in the armour. They like to see, oh, I, I could see it coming. Well, no, you can't see it coming if you don't change who you are and you keep an even keel. At the end of the day, as a manager, you're going to get sacked. You're going to get fired. You're going to leave the football club. If, you, if you're worried about it, don't sign up to be a manager. You know, you're just hoping that it's done for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. Yeah, I've got a couple of follow-ups on on Wolves. Basically, you you mentioned Graham Taylor playing four four two for as long as I can remember. Wolves were a sort of typical four four two club, and I've got two questions really because obviously in recent times that's changed a little bit with Nuno Espirito Santo. So my first question is: Do you believe that clubs have an identity? rather than, say, coaches within that club. And then I guess I'm contradicting myself with the second question, but when you see what Nuno Espirito Santo has done, is the biggest factor in him being able to change that style a little bit and play with a bit more flair finances? Or is it just the stubbornness and the, the sort of vision of the coaching question? Well, let, let me use those two examples, as you said there. Graham, Graham Taylor, obviously a four-four-two, simple um, way of playing. You know, sometimes four-four-two is the most clearest way for players, and a lot of managers stick to four-four-two because they have two banks of four when they're defending, and then it makes it simple, and you get numbers in the box because there's two forwards. Um, he was maligned probably for playing a little bit direct and long ball. Nuno at the moment in Wolves, and he's doing a fantastic job there. Everyone raves about how good they are with the ball, without the ball. They open up play, they do this, they do that. If you look at the possession stats on Wolves, they very rarely go over 50%. Yeah. Very rarely. The way they play is clear. He has his, his, his philosophy or methodology of how he wants to play with a back three. And he gets numbers in certain areas. The two wide players support him and his very, very well. They've got experienced players. They probably have less possession than what Graham Taylor did back in the 90s. Uh, but the party line, it's the line that people want to believe and are told is Wolves play a fantastic brand of football, but with less possession. All right. So how do you weigh that up in relation to comparing apples to oranges? You can't. So it's just what has been told. And I, I'm a big Wolves fan. I love the way Wolves play with a back three. Uh, yeah. and the way, But also... The players, high-level players, you're talking about the main, him and as the main number nine for Mexico, you're talking about Portuguese international players, top, top players. Yeah. So you become a better team when you have better players. The manager puts a structure uh, in place with foundations and principles of how he wants to play. If you do the same with your team and I do the same with my team and your players are Liverpool standards and mine are, no disrespect to Burnley, Burnley standards, Yeah. Likelihood is you're going to beat me because if your players turn up and perform, you, you're better than me. But you might have an off day and I'm relying on that off day. So it's just interesting the Wolves where it was 20-odd, 30-odd years ago and where it is now um, when 
you know, people love data, love numbers, but the numbers show that Wolves back then under Graham went 4-4-2, had more possession. So how are they a better team today than they were back then? Well, you know, that's the influences. So this, this is fascinating. So do you feel that, that particular coaches, certain coaches are distinctly defensive coaches or attacking coaches? And, and, and I say that knowing that there obviously is a grey line, there's greyness in the middle. But predominantly for me, Nuno Espirito Santo is a defensive coach. He's a guy who he gets the five and the four and, you know, there'll be one forward, but they're very difficult to break down. But then he gives them license to go and break really quickly. Whereas we could look at maybe another coach, a Jurgen Klopp being very much an attack-minded coach, even in the way that he defends with that high pressure and, and a lot of bodies forward into trying to win the ball back in the last third. Do you believe that's a principle in a coach that they're, they're predominantly attack or defence? Or do you think that you have to be malleable and be able to change throughout your career? Jurgen Klopp is, is variable in the way he, he sets up his, his team tactics for certain games. Right? What I will say about Liverpool, and Liverpool's a great example because they're on the verge of winning the Premier League, you know, and hopefully when it continues, they, they, they follow through and do that after a remarkable season. They have three players up front that are probably worth £100 million each. Mm-hmm. So if you're asking them to play defensive and counter-attacking, it's very hard, probably, to do that. Wolves, you know, have, have two wide players that have got pace. They have a number nine in Jimenez, who, who's a very, very good back-to-goal player. Lots of light feet, lots of touches, and he can play in between two centre-backs quite easy. Wolves don't press high. They go back into the defensive block. Uh, they've got their medium block and they've got their deep block. And they do it because they, they want space for their forwards to run into. All right? And, you know, one analogy I use, you know, when I, when I sat down with Pep Guardiola doing my pro license maybe three, four years ago, he said when they play against Man United, they press high. And they press high to win the ball back as high as they can. It's less distance to the, to the goal. Uh, and they've got numbers in the area. When they play against Crystal Palace, they let Crystal Palace build. And they let them build out from the back because if they allow the first pass to be to a centre-back who's on the edge of the box, nine times out of ten, they probably go long. And when they go long, as soon as they win first contact, which is what company and people like that do, there's massive holes in between their units and in between their lines of their team. So they're never offside. And Aguero and the wide players running out to win are always on the move, running forward against a defender who's squeezing up. And you can tell me that when you're squeezing up and the defender's trying to run beyond you with the ball, with pace, with spacing behind you, you're knackered. So it was an interesting, fascinating, you know, for me to understand the top manager will allow a certain team who probably is not of the highest standard in the Premier League compared to the top, top teams to do it this way. But when he played against the best, which Man United were arguably one of the best back then, um, to do it a different way. So it shows you that even the top managers have different tactics within their game model. Um, but they don't tell you about it. All right? They don't shout from the rooftops. They don't sit down and they don't spend an hour on a PowerPoint with you because they don't need to. They have to actually convince the players of why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And at the end of the day, the only way you find out of whether it's worked or not is results. Because if they win, they've done it right. If they lose... They take responsibility for it because of the work and the hours they put into their players to try and find a solution to the opposition's problem to get the best out of their players. Yeah, I, I love that one that you, you're you saying there about the players. And I think that simplifying it to the players and having them believe in, in your theory is absolutely critical. And, and as coaches, you know, we go through hundreds of hours of analysis on a style or a way of playing or a tactic for that game at the weekend. But then you maybe get you maybe get a couple, two or three, 15 to 30 minute meetings with the players and then you get a few opportunities on the grass to show them. How do you simplify that and how do you convince them? That's the word you use, I loved it. Convince them that this is the right way to win that game on the Saturday. Well, when you, when you analyse the opposition and you're preparing for... Uh, you know, Saturday match. It starts on a Monday. You know, players probably don't know, and certain managers have different ways of 
building their week up. They don't know whether it's stuck, you know, they think it starts probably on a Thursday or Friday as soon as you do 11 v 11. Um, the ideas don't, they start early on in the week and you put on small practices and, and passing drills and things like that for relation to how they're going to play on Saturday and how you're going to expose them on Saturday. But you don't tell them because if players know that they're doing tactical work every day, they'll complain and moan. If players know that they're not doing any tactical work, they'll complain. So players, players are a, a real interesting breed. They, they, you love them to bits, um, but their mind does awful things to them. And when you've got 26 or 28 really strong individuals who all have their own minds and, and two or three or four are not happy, then they can influence others. So you make it clear what you want. You know, there's probably six or seven things each manager has in his mind with the ball or without the ball that he wants. You have to pick two or three. You know, if you give them too many, they'll say, yes, boss, but what about this and what about that? So you don't. You make it clear. And the ones that are able to, and you always have one or two or three that tactically understand everything you want. Yeah. Right? So you do two or three points to the team, and then you elaborate it individually with certain players. You might give your centre-back an extra point. You might give your midfield player who tactically is very, very smart. And I know that you've spoken before about the boy at Toronto, Jonathan Osorio, who, who I think is yeah. a wonderful player, not just with the ball, but without the ball, tactically smart. Yeah. People see that. People don't understand that. Managers do. Managers just have players. And I firmly believe that managers had a respect for me as a player because I was one of them players that when I was told to do something, I carried out that duty probably to the detriment of myself, but for the betterment of the team. And I think Azorio is that type of player. So you go to players like him and you say, you know, these are the three principles we have, but there's another two areas which I need to focus on that I think are important to the team. And you being a leader and a driver of this team, I need you to be aware of them. So if I shout them to you, you can be the, the coordinator on the field. Um, so you do that with the tactically smarter players, and you let the players who need to have a free mind to you know, show what they're good at, usually the forwards or the, the, the wingers that are always enigmas, to play with a free mind and try and win you a game. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty qualified to talk about you as a player because I was your teammate for a few years at Sunderland. And, uh, and, you know, you were a guy who was a football player, wanted to pass the ball all the time but understood that the game was more about just that. You were a guy who positionally, I think, was, was, was really excellent, was always in the right place, could, could stop attacks really quickly, but then had the, the poise and the quality to then go and put our team on the attack. And I also think you were a guy who demanded a lot from people and who was a real leader within a dressing room and also on a pitch come Saturday. But you see yourself have you took taken all the attributes into coaching and and is that the sort of basis of your philosophy of how you want to see your teams play there's a large part to it yes you know first of all i'll say that you can't you can't be a leader you can't be a, a voice that wants to be respected if you don't do things properly if you don't do things correctly so if you're Back in the Sunderland days, many, many years ago, you know, we had a number of voices. You know, there was no way that you and the rest of the team would listen to me if I didn't do my prehab correctly, I wasn't warming up properly, I wasn't committed to training properly, I wasn't doing my uh, generations properly, regenerations properly. Um, when things are going great, everyone wants to speak. It's really interesting. And when things aren't going well, then you, you have little turtlenecks and you put your head down and things like that. I was never that type of person, which is why we had so many arguments in the locker room because, you know, we were always team players first. And you can spot them a mile away. You know who they are. People nowadays will try and tell you they're a team player, but the reality is they're not, you know. And football people see right through them. You know, you can, you can spot them a mile off. The ones that, when things are going great and you're winning games, are always there. They want to be in the interviews and they want to be on the back of the paper. And when you're losing games and, and you're getting pelters from all quarters, don't want to stand up and do an interview yeah. or are very blunt with their assessments and don't want to be the person they are. They're not leaders for me. All right. So that was a big part of who I am today. You know, I wanted to play a certain way, you know, and that was, I don't know if you remember, but Mick McCarthy 
said to me, and I, I wanted the ball all the time. I was playing round corners. I was trying to suck people in then to create overloads and space and things like that. And I remember Mick saying to me, when a square ball comes round to me, in and around, you know, the, the, the defending third, in towards the halfway line, you do not try and open your body up and switch play. You play round the corner in behind their defence. Yeah. I remember looking at him in training and saying, Gaffer, I've got time, I can turn. No. And he was clear with me that if I did not play that ball around the corner, I would not play. Uh, and I remember saying to you, what's he, what's he on about? I can't believe that. Right? As you evolve as a person and a coach, you find out the reason why. And the reason why, and, you know, it took me a week to go and ask him why. And back then he said to me, it's a trigger for my centre forward, Marcus Stewart, knowing that when a square ball comes into you, he is clear with what you're doing. You're playing it around the corner. He's moving. He's running. He's not as big as the centre-backs who don't like to run, who don't like to be facing their own goals. So if I make it clear for him that you're doing it at that moment, then it's an understanding that you two develop. And suddenly it become a part of my repertoire that I didn't have. I wanted to play in front of people all the time. And then suddenly... I was playing in behind team, so which it allowed him to have a trigger, me to have more space, the defence to drop off, bigger spaces to appear, which gave me more opportunities then to decide. And then he elaborated on, then you can decide if there's no one around you, you can turn. But if he didn't put that restriction in for me, I wouldn't have been able to, Marcus Stewart wouldn't be able to run in the channels and create the space for me then to have the space. If he doesn't do that, the game is really condensed. And the game becomes hard for us as a team. So there's little triggers, there's little scenarios in that. Uh, and Mick was a big influencer of mine uh, in, the, in the way that they play, in the way that I play and what I want to have as my values um, as a coach. But, you know, there's so many things, good and bad, that you could take that you've got to try and mould it in. But it's important you don't overload as well. Yeah, I think I had my same conversation with Mick as I'm sure every player within that squad would tell you. And, and with me, it was I came from reserve football, and I was I was under Tommy Craig, a, a, a real total football guy. And I guess there's no real pressure in reserve football, but he was always asking us as centre halves to nod it down to midfielders and to full backs. And I did that a couple of times in training. And Mick told me in no uncertain terms, when it comes to your head, you header it forward as far as you can. And so, with the same story as what you told, I think. The biggest strength in mix was the, 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 the predictability to the patterns that we played with and the, the real black and white way that, that Mick coached and that kind of the way that he led us in, in every sense of that word, with culture, with, with, with team play, with style of play. There was, there was a real black and whiteness to it, wasn't there? And I think that that's a massive thing for players because it gives you that clarity. It then breeds confidence would you agree that he was one of the best that you worked with with the attributes? Yeah, easy, easily. The best, probably one of the best communicators. His door was always open. If you had a question, you'd go in. Whether you'd get the answer or not was totally different. <laughs> but he was one that had an open door policy. You know, that's the way I work. I don't want my players having grey areas in their mind. I need them to be, be clear with what we want because if you tell a player to run right, he'll probably run left. If you if you say to a player you need to run right to play, he'll run right. So that's you know what you have to do. He was an expert at it. You know the way he moulded the squad, and I say the squad, not just eleven players because eleven players don't usually play a lot of the minutes, but you need a squad. Was phenomenal. You know he kept everyone involved, everyone engaged. You know he gave opportunities when they were deserved. I think that's the key as well because. You know, if you trained well and then you come on and made an impact, but then you switched off the next week uh, because you weren't training properly. Alash, we talk about Sean Thornton, one of yeah. uh, you know, a fantastic young player at the time, had so much ability, but probably mind wasn't there all the time and didn't play, didn't play, and he couldn't work out why. But our old friend Whitley played every game because yeah. you knew what you got. It was clear. So um, there's certain values and fundamentals which I carry with me today based upon what Mick and it shows you the influence he has now and it's great when I can pick up the phone to him and still speak to him now um, because that shows you the respect that I had for him but also the respect he had for me as, as the player and, and captain before you took it off me <laughs> So you left, you left Wolves 2002 you went to Portsmouth never quite worked out there a lot of loan spells before you got to Sunderland but 
the, the question I want to ask here is the, the influence of different managers, I think, is, is crucial to probably the makeup of what's, what's turned you into an excellent coach. Explain a little bit about that. And, and before you explain, I just want to mention a story. I went to Wigan in 2010 and I worked with Roberto Martinez and I was about 30 years old and he, he changed the way that I thought about the game. And I was 30. And I, I probably thought that I was set my ways at that point. But like I said, he, he changed me and we had many discussions and, and I sort of, my philosophies as, as a kind of football guy, whether I was a player or whatever I was going to become, had just slightly altered. Was there one guy that did that for you out of all these unique coaches that you worked under? Probably Hans Backer, later on at New York Red Bulls. There, there were so many influences I had. You mentioned Mick there at Sunderland, I know we are fast-tracking, but Harry Redknapp, you know, the good old Harry Redknapp. Everyone loves Harry. You yeah. know, how can you not love Harry? And I still remember when I left Wolves and went to Portsmouth. Harry was brilliant. He was, he was the best man-manager without too many tactics I've ever, ever known. Yeah. How to keep players happy. And, and we had a locker room which was Paul Merson, Patrick Berger, Shaka Hislop, some real big Steve Stone, some real big characters. And what he did was he let the players control the locker room. He let the players run it. And all he did was guide them. Without too much information, he let experienced, good players play the game. And that's where I thought, you know, and it was the first thought I had in my mind, players win games. You know, you can do all the tactics and all the coaching you want in the world to put out a framework to give them structure. But if the players don't buy into what you want and the players don't like you, they're not going to perform. And Harry was the first manager I probably had, which I saw, which opened my eyes on, just keep the players happy. Do I think he could do more? Probably yes, and he will look back at it and say, yeah, but when you played it, uh, managed a thousand times or so at the top level, no, he doesn't need to do more. He's done everything right because keeping players happy, especially big players, is, is, is a fundamental thing. But he knew when to come in, and when he did come in, which was usually after a defeat or when he needed to sort of get a reaction, it was 1v1s and 2v2s, and he made it competitive. So he was bringing that competitive spirit back in. You know, shape-wise, he relied on on the players we had. And we did have some really, really good players who understood the game with the ball and without the ball to control the game. You know, and I spent my first 16 games at Portsmouth were great. Uh, and then Portsmouth signed, we signed Tim Sherwood, who was an England international at the time. Yeah. And that's why I went out on loan to all these teams. But going on loan was an unbelievable experience for me because it was out of my comfort zone. It was something that made me have to prove myself again. When you're at a club for so many years, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. You become part of the furniture. You become a little bit lazy sometimes. And people then think, oh, it's okay. Managers come and go. Coaches come and go. But players can stay because he's been here for 10 years. It doesn't help any player. So I went out on loan. I worked with Neil Warnock. And Neil Warnock was the same sort of thing as Harry Redknapp. Control players, manage players, but allowed them to be who they are. Probably had a few more days off than Harry Redknapp, you know, <laughs> and that's what players loved back then. Um, but players run through a brick wall for Neil because, and they still do to this day, or you know, prior to him leaving Cardiff, because yeah. he looked after them. Whether it's right or not, players want to be valued and feel like the manager likes them and wants them and, and things like that. And yes, there'll be players that are unhappy, but I was one of them that I, I opened my eyes on Neil to see how he man-managed people. Him and Harry were probably two of the ones not doing the tactical detail, which probably nowadays certain managers do and get, but keeping players individually, collectively in squads happy and winning promotions. So it worked for the guys. Yeah, I had that way Owen Coyle at Burnley as well. It was it was the same kind of thing where the week was, was set up. <laughs> it was predetermined, the, the sessions that you did. So it never really changed. And there was a, I guess there was a little bit of uh, moaning for the guys and that, that it was um, it was a bit mundane at times in terms of the training that we did. But the team spirit and the man management that Owen had was, was absolutely terrific. And he also let the players control the dressing room as well, Robbo. He was a guy who respected the, the senior pros that he had, me being one of them, me being his captain. And he allowed this kind of level of... I guess hierarchy within 
the squad. And, and I'm a big believer in it, and probably because of that spell at Burnley. But I believe there's a pyramid within any team. You'll probably find the younger, less experienced guys at the bottom. And, and it sort of peaks up towards your experienced guys and then essentially your captain and your, your vice captain near the top. Do you believe that or do you think... And I'm not saying that anybody's voice was undervalued, but there certainly was a, a kind of weight to other guys' voices compared to, to maybe some of the younger ones. Do you believe that's the right way for a squad to function or do you think that everyone has a say and everything should just be open for everyone to, to talk when they want? I do. Uh, listen, everyone has a voice. I think that's important, but you find out the voices. When you lose a game of football and as a manager, you say to the guys, well, right, tell me what you think. It's those voices that the manager gives a responsibility to be the leaders like yourself, like we're captains, that speak up. And it's only if, if you, as a manager, point at someone and ask someone who probably doesn't want to speak and come out of their little comfort zone what they think, they will speak. So, yes, I do use the same pyramid scenario. You know, what I try and do is incorporate three or four senior players as well as one young player, because young players connect with young players mm-hmm. as a leadership group. You know, there's so many things that go on these days. You know, some, some people don't name captains. I and mean, if you don't name a captain, for me, there's uncertainty then with players because if, if, if me and you are, are, are both captains but no one knows where we stand, then, you know, I'll think I'm right and you'll think you're right. Yeah. right? And we both be right, but we can also both be wrong. So that's not clear with Stevie, you're the captain. Robert, you're the vice captain. And if, if there's nothing, if something I'm unsure about, I'll go to you as the captain and express my views, and then we will express our views to the group. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm clear with what I, how I work and what I want with the leadership group. Um, you know, there's also the, the factor of, as a manager, you treat everyone the same. Well, yes, you do with certain things, all right? But then you also got to be, you've got to open your mind a little bit. There's players from different countries with different cultures, with different beliefs, with different understandings, with different ways of life prior to them coming to you. So you can't ask a, a player for a foreign player who's done it 18, you know, eight years one way to suddenly become this robotic type person, which, you know, you want to, you want him to become, you have to teach him that you have to coach him that. And there's going to be mistakes he makes. So you, you can't, you know teach everyone the same way you have to teach them differently but that's the man management side of it getting to know what's needed yes there's certain things that don't change timekeeping and things like that but the way you treat players is totally different based upon their personality you know it makes me laugh and I used to get into some real heated discussions about you know you talk about academy football you know it's really important part of modern day football you know but as an academy manager and academy coach you can plan that you're working on attacking and attacking play for three weeks prior. As a first team coach, you can't do that because you go and lose 4-0 on the weekend. You are not working on attacking patterns. You are working on defensive play and foundations individually and collectively within your structure. So that goes out the window. So when people say, well, why don't you follow the same route as a cadet? You can't. It's impossible because you are judged on results. And when you judge the results on Saturday and Wednesday and Saturday, as soon as one game's gone, you move on. You try and correct the mistakes that you make, but building ahead to the opposition that are coming towards you that cause a different problem. So it's not as easy as that. And it makes me smile sometimes when people say, well, you know, you're changing the pattern of the week based upon the result. Yeah, you do. You do. You try and put in what you need to correct, but also what you need to work on. And it is based upon the result. You can't go and work on attacking, crossing and shooting when you've conceded four or five goals at the weekend. You, it's madness. Yeah, so how, so how do you keep your philosophy then, your overall philosophy of what you want? If you are reactionary to results, everybody has to be. But as we know, most managers that get sacked are all over the place in the last three, four weeks of their managerial ship. We know that... The players are talking, they're in the changing and they're saying the gaffer's losing it, basically. So my question is, how do you keep the confidence up? How do you keep these lads following you as a leader while adjusting things, thinking about defending, thinking about attacking and keeping that hopeful momentum or building that momentum back up to keep everyone on the same track? Well, 
you know, philosophy is a word that is thrown out there a lot. Okay, and what is you know what is what is a philosophy? A philosophy is is a way of playing, right? That's mm-hmm. as simple as that. Right? So, is it a system? Is it a style? Or you know, is it a bit of both? All right, the way the, how I you know, and I don't really talk about it publicly too much because I don't need to. I said mm-hmm. my job is to influence the players that I have in my changing room, whether that would be in, in New York when I was the player coach, whether in Vancouver or whether it's in Newcastle. So you have to influence the people there. I have a methodology. My methodology consists of a number of certain things. All right? So the, step one for me is foundations and principles. All right? Foundations is what you want, what you require. Principles is how you do things and, and, and the way you do things. All right? That is the first pillar that you have. Second one is attitude and behaviors. All right. So you've got to conduct yourself the right way. Your behavior has got to be right. Attitude. Attitude. We talk about high press in football. You can't do that if you have three lazy center forwards. It's as simple as that. So you can't be a high pressing team if you don't have very mobile and keen center forwards who want to press. So pressing is an attitude. And it's a behavior that you've got to, you might not have in the team, you've got to instill in the team. And if you can't instill it, you've got to change the personnel. Right? Then suddenly, so those are, those are non-negotiable. That is what you have, and you develop them as a, as a foundation. So that's your one building block. Within that, then you have styles and systems. And when you say styles and systems, right, everyone, everyone would, would say about me when I was in Vancouver for five years that I would play a 4-2-3-1, and I would never change away from that, right? And I didn't used to say nothing, but it used to make me smile and laugh because – Four, four, two, three, one plays with a number 10 and two wingers, right? People will say, well, you, you know, you only have one player in the box, right? There were times when I played four, four, two, not a number 10, two forwards. And people would say, you still play four, two, three, one. There was times when I played four, three, three with one single pivot and two advance, right? Which was a four, three, three. People go, you play four, two, three, one, right? So style systems changed within Right? People on the outside didn't see it or didn't want to see it or didn't understand it. No problem. My job was not to convince them. My job was to convince the players. And it was also styles and system changed within my methodology based upon the opposition we're playing. If the opposition, we played Seattle and Ozzy Alonso was a number six who dictated the game. I needed to get a number 10 on him when we didn't have the ball. So against Seattle, I would always play with a 4-4-1-1 or a 4 2 three, one. Mm-hmm. Same system, different roles by 15 yards for wide players. That's all it was, all right? So convincing players was easy. Same shape, same system, foundations, principles the same, behaviors, attitudes same. This role is slightly different for one or two personnel. Yeah. So when people get caught up in systems, right, it makes me smile because, you know, if you go from a 4 2 three, one to a 3 4 three, to a 5-2-3, to a 5-2-3, to a 4-4-2 diamond, players are sitting in that locker room going, Gaffer doesn't know what he's doing, you know. He's yeah. changing his mind. He's trying to get a result on the weekend. So, again, philosophy's great. Methodology, what I work to, non-negotiable foundations, principles, building blocks. Tactics change within that. You know, systems and styles, tactics are really important based upon the opposition. You can't be naive and blind. We are going to do this way. We're not worrying about the opposition because the opposition might change and all your plans of the week go out the window in the first 10 minutes because they've set up a game plan to execute and it hurts you. What are you going to do to change? So you have to be open-minded on that, that if that happens, because opposition is going to stop you playing. Yeah, so open-minded on that's a, a good one here as well because, you know, you, you, let's say you set up with your four-two-three-one. You're you're sure that Alonso's going to get on the ball. You're playing Seattle, and all of a sudden Seattle show you something different. <laughs> what moment do you decide that you're going to counteract what Seattle have done, or do you stay stubborn and stay with your thing? You know, like. It's a game of cat and mouse, isn't it? And you understand this better than me, standing there on the touchline for a number of games. But you can make all the plans you want, but until that whistle goes, yeah. you learn and see new things. I think decisiveness is a key attribute here for a head coach. 
And I think his ego has to be left at the door. Do you agree with that? Or do you like to take time with the formation or the, the, the system that you've set out there for that game? Yeah, I think Mike Tyson's analogy of everyone can fight until you're punched in the nose <laughs> is a great example because he's right. All right, You set up all your game plan and after five minutes, you know, your opposition do something different and then they go one nil up. So, or, you know, you have to change or do you change? Do you wait? You know, and these are the things that in game scenarios, I talk about a staff, I talk about your assistants, you know, they're sitting on the sideline watching the game in probably a different mindset to you. You're well, as a manager, you're involved, you're engaged. You see what you want to see sometimes. Yeah. You don't see everything that your assistants see. So you're relying on your assistant, your staff to say, hey, Gaffer, uh, this, this scenario is happening here. Not just once, but maybe three or four times. So you then have to be open-minded as a manager to say, okay, well, how do we stop that source? Right, it might be an adjustment. It might be the wide player plays 10 yards deeper. It might be the wide player plays 10 yards higher. So there's little tactical adjustments within your game model and how you want to play that affects the opposition who are having a little bit of joy against you. You know, if you think you're going to dominate the game for 95 minutes in a game of football, you're completely wrong. You might dominate it for 80 minutes. And if you do that, you know, that's great. The opposition always have a 10-minute period. No matter how bad they are, how poor they are on the day, they will have a 10-minute period. And if you're not switched on, engaged, to stop that 10-minute period of them getting a chance or chances, you, you won't win enough games of football. So that shows you football is, is even. You can have control, total control in the game, uh, but you can concede. Uh, and that's why I think you hear a lot which is thrown out there. You can be in control of the ball when you don't have the ball. And it's, a, it's an important factor that I use is being in control of the, of the game with the ball and being in control of the game without the ball are two fundamentals that I try and teach my team because, you know, you're setting traps, you're setting areas where you know that you're very strong, that you want the opposition to go because you're comfortable doing it. You've spent time as a player on, on three continents now, uh, you know, England, obviously UK, North America and, and, and over in Australia coaching. I, I get to... Australia in a minute, but in North America, what differences did you see in, in, in style and culture of a league? And uh, again, how quickly do you think you have to adapt to that and, um, and sort of appreciate and recognise that when you go to a different, uh, a different league? Well, it's important you immerse yourself in the culture there. You know, in 2007, when I went to Toronto, it was a new franchise. It was excitement. They'd signed a new... Uh, a number of homegrown uh, new players, local players, Jim Brennan, uh, Greg Sutton, you know, Marco Reda, Chris Posniak, these boys. And there was excitement because there was no football team there other than some, you know, local lower, lower level teams. Uh, so Toronto FC was the big thing. You know, we come in, uh, huge build up to it. Uh, but you have to immerse yourself in the culture and the culture is you have to do more appearances. Players in England like to have a private life off the field uh, and don't do appearances over here in America. And, you know, they encourage it. They allow you to do it. They even pay you to do it, which is incredible. You know, you have to be out in the community. And I think that's where you find out more about community and grassroots football over here because it's important for the kids to have a, you know, us in England, we had the players on TV. We watched all the players at the clubs we were growing up at. When there's not a club here to grow up with, you know, who, who do you idolise? Who do you follow? Who do you want to become? So that's so why it's important you get out in the community. And we did that in Toronto. It's a great city. It's a great football club. You know, and even though there was, there was very limited success in the first two years that I was there, you know, I learned a lot. It's, it's some really good people there who love the game, who, who, who understand the game. You know, let's, let's be fair about it. If people understand the game, you can have a football conversation. It's no mm-hmm. problem. Opinions are great. And everyone's entitled to an opinion. But you have to understand the game. And if you understand the game, then you can talk football all day long. And, and that's what Toronto was about. And I enjoyed my time there. Obviously, it came to an, an abrupt end, uh, which was unfortunate after the, you know, the New York Red Bulls play, uh, last game of the season. Uh, but that was out of my hands. That was uh, an uncontrollable thing that I couldn't control. So I had to yeah, accept you that. Weren't, you weren't playing in that game, the 5-1 defeat uh, in Giant Stadium when Toronto had a chance to make the playoffs. 
no, I wasn't. Uh, I had, uh, had a knee operation. And, and it, I still smile to this day because, you know, we had John Carver, who was the manager there, uh, and JC, great person, obviously, yep. went through all these emotions up and down and uh, obviously lost his job. And, and Chris Cummings took charge. And, you know, Chris had led us um, with the help of the leadership group, and I was one of them, to to get to within one game of, of getting to the playoffs so in year two or three. And, you know, we needed to get results away in, in New York Red Bulls, which wasn't easy. Red, you know, it's when you, whenever you go away on turf, it's, it's very difficult, you know, but we had a good, good team and Amada Guevara, the Wolf and Dero and Adrian Sirio. And, you know, we had good, good players. Um, and two weeks prior, I, I'd had a knee operation. So I went back to England, back to my home in Hereford. And I remember getting up through the middle of the night and watching the game and, um, managed, Chris changed the formation. We played four four two or four two three one, and he changed it to a back three three five two, and oh. and they lost. Um, we lost five nil or five one at the time. Matt Kanji scored a couple of goals for Red Bulls, and so did Juan Pablo Angel. And you know, I watched the game and I was disappointed. I was gutted because it was the closest one we got. Uh, and then I got told that I was being a negative influence in the locker room after the game, which. I thought was very strange because I was a leader. I was one of the captains there, uh, me and Jim Brennan, but, and I wouldn't speak to the media. I refused. And I didn't because I was in Hereford. I was in, <laughs> I was in England recovering from a knee up, but the line had been told. And as you said, the, then there was a big story and I didn't say nothing at the time. I come back in preseason because I had a contract. Frecky was a new manager and, uh, and the decision was made. I was moving on from Toronto. So sometimes you can't control things. And when you yeah. can't control things, you have to accept it and move on. What I do do, and it's stuck for me to this day, is I, I go quietly. I, I don't shout from the rooftops. I don't need to. The truth always comes out in the end, as Mick McCarthy always says. Yeah. You don't need to try and convince people because it comes out in the end. And football people talk. And if football people talk, it always comes out. So that was one of the not good experiences I had. I still love the club, love the city. Great bunch of people. I'm glad that they're being successful. Uh, what are the differences between Carl Robinson standing there in his first game as head coach at Vancouver Whitecaps and Carl Robinson in his last game uh, before this break, unfortunately, with the Newcastle Jets in the A-League in Australia? What, what have you learned along the managerial pathway and how much do you think you're still going to evolve or do you feel like Again, things are set in stone and, and, and you are going to stubbornly stick to your path. No, I will evolve. You know, the, the four, 14 months I had out of work, which, you know, for me was working because I, I needed a break mentally. Uh, managers always say to you, and when they're out of work, they need a break. And you, you, when you're a player, you're like, well, well, why? You think <laughs> you will get back in straight away and, and some managers do get back in, some don't take a break. I wanted a break because I hadn't had a break in 20 odd years of football. And it was the best thing I ever did because I, I evaluated, I reviewed, I went back on things. And there were things that I would do slightly differently. There were things that I wouldn't. There were things that I were out of my hands, uncontrollables. And you learn from that. So, but you, you, you sense circumstances and you sense understanding. So, I always keep an open mind. The, the, the first game, I think, was New York Red Bulls and Kenny Miller scored two goals for me. And it's quite ironic how the last game when we played against Melbourne City, we win 2-1. You know, and I'm very calm on the bench. I'm sitting down when we score and, and Kenny's up, who's my assistant now. Kenny's up jumping around like I did, you know, game one. You know, we're now on game 210 or something like that. You know, so I try and keep an, an even level keel. I don't get excited. Day one, I was excited because it was my first job. And when it's your first game as, a, as an MLS manager, you want to get off to a good start. And beating my old club at Red Bulls was an unbelievable start for me. But it's down to players. I, I keep saying this all the time. The manager is only as good as your players. That's why if, if your players are better than mine and your players perform, then probably you will win the game. I'm relying on you having a day off or you not getting your players ready or your players being unhappy and me getting my players fired up. So, you know, I will evolve. I will learn. I'm enjoying learning, um, and the day I stop learning will be the day I maybe step away and try and become a TV pundit or an analyst like yourself. <laughs> I knew you'd have to get a dig in near the end there, Robbo, but no, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. I really thank you for your time. It's been some fascinating insight and stuff, and uh, 
Good luck to you when you get back to Newcastle, Australia for the rest of the A-League season, hopefully. And, uh, and obviously, good luck to you in the rest of your managerial career. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jason.